Well, good morning, church fam. It's a privilege to be able to worship alongside y'all this morning in truth, through the scriptures and song and community. Compelled, compelling love. As followers of Jesus, we are compelled to love enemies, friends, the church, the lost. And why? Because Jesus gave his life so that we could be reconciled to God by placing a saving faith in his name alone. And that in itself is what motivates us and drives us to live well for Christ daily. And this week we're going to talk about being compelled to the lost. It's been a very interesting week, right? Super Bowl was this past Sunday. The Chiefs won. I didn't really care who played and who won in the game. I'm not a fan of either team, really. But the biggest takeaway from the game was there was a commercial that kind of talked about what we preached on last week in Loving Your Enemies by an organization called He Gets Us. Uh, and they've had multiple ads throughout the entire season, through uh, the football season. And really it's to bring awareness to Jesus. And what's been very interesting is it's been received with mixed reviews. Right? You had uh, some that were like, oh, this is awesome. And then some like, oh, this is just really shallow marketing. But then we get wind of what's going on at Asbury College. You have like a, a revival and awakening going on because after a chapel service, these college students in dealing with the spirit, convicting them of their sin and them confessing, they just want to pray and worship. And, and in that, you also had skeptics saying, nothing's really going on there. It's all an act. But then you have others like, this is what we've been praying for. Hallelujah, there's revival happening. Now let me be clear, there must always be discernment when there are these movements and things that go on. That is our duty. When you are a follower of Jesus, you are like a Berean, and you look into and make sure everything lines up with the scripture of God. But it really got me to thinking, is, is this what everything has come down to? Are we really arguing as believers in front of a non-believing world over these things. And then because the way I am, I thought even deeper, well, would these things even be necessary if churches and believers were doing their job? I'm not talking about what we know as Western American evangelicalism culture. I'm talking about if we were doing what the Word of God commands us to do, that the word of God is what dictates every step that we take as a follower of Jesus, that if churches were really equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, we wouldn't need seminaries. You wouldn't need TV ads. You wouldn't need movements. Today's text could be compared to go hand in hand with what I preached on back in Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago on what is the church. But today, we're going to look at what is the mission of the church. The purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The mission of the church is to be like Jesus. And we see that in the text in Matthew 9, uh, verses 35 to 38. We see Jesus doing three things. The mission of the church is to teach, to preach, and to heal. That's it. If we did these things, wouldn't gospel proclamation be more of a norm? Wouldn't churches have a stronger footprint in their local communities? And again, the harsh reality is that movements would not be needed if the church was really doing its job 
And so the question we must all ask ourselves, and this includes myself, is that what needs to change so I can fully live into my role as a follower of Christ to minister in a broken world? But let's pray before we dive into the Lord's word. Father, we thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you created music so we can sing unto you. We thank you for the scriptures that tell us who you are, Lord. We thank you for the scriptures that tell us how to live a life that is obedient, that is worthy, that is one that is compelled. Father, we give this service to you today, Lord. And not just this service, we give our whole lives. Lord, I pray for a mighty movement to happen through this local church, this church family of CBC, Lord. Father, we are ready to follow your lead. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This passage serves as a transitional section between chapters 9 and 10. We see Jesus' public ministry earlier in chapters 5 through 9 in Matthew, where you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is verses, chapters 5 through 7, and then you have his healing ministry, which is chapters 8 and 9. But Matthew is also pointing the readers to look ahead to chapter 10, which is where he gives his first missional discourse as to what the disciples need to do to go and proclaim salvation in Jesus alone to Israel. The historian Josephus even gave that there were about 240 towns and villages in the area where Jesus was ministering, just to give you an idea of the scale of the ministry. What I love sometimes is when the background of the text is in the text itself, so we don't have to go into all of that, and it gives me extra time to preach. But we see right here, it says that Jesus went everywhere, that he didn't just sit back and wait for people to come to him. He was proactive, and he went after people. In the book of Matthew, Jesus ministered in villages, cities, the countryside, in synagogues, mountains, boats, graveyards, homes. Jesus ministered everywhere. He went everywhere. And what did he do? I said earlier, he was teaching. He was rooting his followers in truth, helping them grow in maturity. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where he addressed Christian living, practices on what to do and how to do, a Christian worldview, how his followers, how we as Christians should look at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. He was also revealing his authority as a teacher because his teachings influenced the crowds more than that of the religious leaders of the current time. So he was teaching, he was proclaiming, basically, he was preaching that salvation was in him alone, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one gets to the Father except through him. And he was also healing. Now, although the healings and uh, miracles were all very important, they did play a secondary uh, they were secondary to Jesus' teaching and preaching. And why? Well, because the miracles confirmed the deity of Christ. They confirmed his authority as healer. They validated what he was teaching and preaching. And his healings is not what gave eternal life. It was salvation in him that gave eternal life. And so we saw that he healed the sick servant, the leper, 
a friend's mom, a demon-possessed man, a paralytic, a dead girl, the woman with the blood issue, blind men, a mute man, all in chapters 8 and 9. Now, one thing I do want to take a quick sidestep is that how does healing look today? Because if that's what we're supposed to do as a church, if that's our mission, well, it's important that we understand there are some differing views when it comes to the spiritual gift of healing. We need to understand today we have the full revelation of God in the text, in the scriptures. And so we believe that some spiritual gifts are no longer necessary to prove the power of God. But that is also not a heal I would die on, saying that God doesn't do healing anymore, um, because he's God. So he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. But typical conservative theology, which we adhere to here at CBC, can understand that healing in today's context really looks like soul care. And what I'm talking about is meeting the felt needs of the people spiritually and physically around you. And so to really understand that the mission of the church is being like Jesus, we have to understand that being like Jesus is not a suggestion. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, it is an expectation to be like Jesus. Therefore, his mission should be ours, so we should teach, preach, and heal. That's it. Now, there are some dangers if you don't do all of these three things. If you preach only, it's great to feed the major points of God's message, but Scripture tells us that we are to grow in maturity and knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. If you teach only, it can lead to knowledge only, which can cause puffed-up chests, intellectualism, and you will easily lose the awe and wonder of the gospel of Christ. And if it's healing only and your emphasis is only on meeting felt needs, you're just creating warm and fuzzy feelings, you're neglecting the importance of salvation. And that's why Jesus did all three. Therefore, we do all three. All three are a necessity. And so Jesus continued, and he saw the crowds, and he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless. Jesus not only went to people, he saw people physically and spiritually. Jesus was always looking for people. And here we see the doctrine of Jesus being both fully God and fully man coming into play here when we're talking about Jesus seeing people because Jesus, being the full embodiment of God, was El Roy in the flesh. That means he was the God who sees me in the flesh. The beauty of this name of God is that uh, God was the one that Hagar cried out to as she was fleeing Abraham's house from Sarah and stress and difficulty and pain and hurt. But God saw her, and he told her to go back home where it would be safe, where she would be protected because of the blessing that he had given over Abraham's household. God saw her in her desperation, her panic, and her hurt, and that's Jesus. He sees it all, and it's because of his compassion. This is why Jesus was able to see he was motivated by his compassion for humanity. We can see in this text that the biblical definition of compassion is very different from the one that we use today in our everyday language, though. Because today, compassion is often defined as seeing an injustice, posting about it on social media, and then going out and getting a $10 coffee afterwards. Compassion today is often seeing something that may grieve you for a moment, but then going on your merry way. Because compassion today is defined only as an emotional feeling. 
But the Greek word for compassion is rooted in the word splankna, which is your kidneys, your bowels, and your intestines. So having compassion means splanknizomai, which means to be moved in your inward parts. The easiest way to describe it is that you get this intense feeling uh, that you see something is wrong and you respond with, I need to do something. I must do something now. And Jesus felt this compassion for the people of Israel because they were desperate and hopeless, harassed and helpless. The imagery that Matthew wants us to see when we see those two words is one of a predator mangling a sheep and throwing it down and leaving it to die from its mortal wounds. It's a very serious and sad state that the people of Israel were in. It was one of dejection. And again, understanding these words in the Greek is a past perfect tense. And it's significant for us to understand that because it basically means that this neglect and harm for the sheep of Israel has been going on since the past. And it really began when the two kingdoms split, right? But it had been going on from then and was currently happening now. So the people of Israel didn't have the peace that surpasses all understanding. And the reason that they were harassed and helpless is because they had no one to shepherd them, no one to care for them. They were sheep without a shepherd. God takes the task of shepherding very seriously because a shepherd guides his sheep to green pastures, protects them from predators, searches for the sheep that go astray. A shepherd feeds, comforts, heals, and protects the sheep. And why? Because sheep are dumb animals. If left to themselves, they would die pretty quickly as a predator would overcome them. We've seen many videos where we see a sheep getting stuck in a hole, a shepherd pulling it out, and it jumps right back in, right? That's why they need shepherds. And a sheep could fall off a mountainside, all sorts of bad things. They need someone to guide them. And so we see the compassion of Christ in this aspect because it wasn't just about people struggling. We know that they were under the power of Rome, but there was not a specific duress due to uh, the political situation, the, politically what's going on then. Jesus' compassion was because of their spiritual state, one that was dead. And the religious leaders of the time were doing absolutely nothing about it. Because Jesus saw that life was hard for the people of Israel. He saw that religion was crushing them, and he saw that sin was devastating them. Again, we're not talking about acts of sin. We're talking about the state of sin, the state of sin that they were in, that we are all in because of the sin of Adam when he disobeyed God in the very beginning. And that sin has been passed all the way down to people apart from a saving relationship with Christ. Because of that, you're destined for doom upon your physical death. That is what the state of sin does, and that was crushing Jesus' heart because he knew what was coming for them. And why? Because the religious leaders were not fulfilling their duties and responsibilities to care for the people of Israel as commanded by God in the Pentateuch. They didn't encourage them or, or inspire them to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength or to love their neighbor. Instead, they forced their traditions on these people. They focused on rules instead of soul care. Tell them that following rules is what gave you salvation or following rules demonstrates your spiritual health and holiness. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, and other leaders had forsaken their flock. They literally added to their burdens and pains. 
And because of that, the people turned to other beliefs. They turned to atheism, polytheism, uh, philosophy, humanism, all leaving them in the same spiritual death. Literally one job to do, and they didn't do it. They refused to do it. That's what we see. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10 shows how not shepherding looks and what its results are. In the passage, it says that these political and religious leaders in Ezekiel 34 were only feeding themselves, that they had not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured, that they had not sought out the stray sheep. Because of that, the sheep scattered. I love movies, and Patch Adams is one of my favorite movies. I saw it as a college student, and it really opened my eyes to what does it mean to have compassion for people. Honestly, this movie really shaped how some of my theology is in regards to being a shepherd. And and Patch Adams is played by Robin Williams, and this man becomes a doctor because after his experience with doctors and not being seen or heard or valued, he's like, I'm going to be a doctor so I can shake up the system and change the game. He actually told the doctor, I'm becoming a doctor because you're terrible at it. Well, Patch inspired many of his fellow students to think bigger than a job title. Patch cared for patients, and he refused to call them by their illness. He called them by their names because he saw people. Patch Adams was a shepherd, and he cared for people both physically and spiritually. He, he helped them with medicine, and then when it came to their mental aspects, he helped them by making them laugh, by listening to them, by loving them. You know who Patch Adams also reminds me of? Pastor Pete. They both loved people. So many in our church family were loved by Pastor Pete. Pastor Pete taught and inspired me to shepherd our flock when I first started working here. He's like, you always love people, Chang. He actually called me Chang. It was funny. But he says, you spend time with them. We can look at Psalm 23 as a great example of what a shepherd should do. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever which ultimately points to Jesus as the ultimate example of a shepherd. We see Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10, and that's what is promised to Israel in Ezekiel 34. Jesus is the noble, wholesome, beautiful, good shepherd. He is the one who gives rest to the weary and burdened. He is the one whose yoke is light, the one who is gentle and humble in heart. He is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus preached because of his compassion, He taught because of his compassion, and he healed because of his compassion. We have to understand that shepherding is not a suggestion. It's an expectation. We all shepherd, whether you're in vocational ministry or lay ministry, but today specifically, Jesus is calling out pastors, leaders in churches. And what I mean by that is that for me, being a shepherd, Being a pastor, that's in my job title, literally. Being a pastor is a shepherd teacher. So I take that very seriously. All pastors and church leaders are supposed to take that role seriously because we see what happens when you don't. So we are to teach, preach, and heal. We are to be biblical. 
I saw a tweet from a professor at Southwestern Seminary named Micah Carter, and he said that pastors need to be a shepherd and not a CEO. Pastors need to be a servant and not a celebrity. Pastors need to be an expositor and not an influencer. I say that, church fam, because I want you all to hold me accountable. Right? My job is to shepherd y'all. That's my calling. And if I'm not shepherding, it is your job to say, Chang, you're not shepherding me. So I give you the permission to call me out if I'm not ever shepherding you. That's how we do church. We're family. Someone at the gym once asked me, what does it mean to shepherd? And I told them that shepherds run to the pain. We also have to understand that compassion is not a suggestion. It's an expectation. It always leads to action. Biblical compassion is seeing people, going to people, getting close to people, loving people, always saying, I am here for you. Our hearts should break for the unsaved. And if we're lacking in compassion, it's because we don't think seriously about the reality of hell for those who do not have a saving relationship apart from Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. I love when I go ahead in the slides. We finish out with these two verses. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but there are few laborers. Remember when I said that this text helps transition into chapter 10? What's going on is the next scene in chapter 10. Jesus is telling his disciples, go two by two, proclaim salvation in me alone. So Jesus is now empowering his disciples to go and teach, preach, and heal, do what he did, right? To live into the calling, to be fishers of men. This is like a prequel to the great commission as given in Matthew 28. This was the first mission commission to Israel. And so from a Christological standpoint to understand, we talked about Jesus being both fully God and fully man. He had to empower these people because Jesus, being fully man, could not be omnipresent. He could not physically be everywhere all at once. He would get tired. He would run out of energy because he was fully man. And so he wanted people to come alongside him because they were to continue the work of the ministry. And Jesus also knew that he wasn't going to be on earth forever. So who's going to continue the ministry once he leaves? His followers. They were going to teach, preach, and heal. And so he says that the harvest is plentiful. Look at the harvest. Look at the multitudes of people. The, the metaphor switches now from sheep into a harvest. Look at all the lost souls around. But look at the opportunity. Look at the opportunity. And he said, the opportunity that you get, what you get to do, guys, is you get to go and proclaim the gospel to all. And that's something we're all to do. It's not a suggestion. And Jesus needs laborers now. That's what he's saying. I need you to do this now. There is literally an unlimited amount of work to be done. Because how long does it take one person to harvest 100 acres? A really long time. What about two or three? A really long time. 100 people, 200 people, 300 people, now we're getting somewhere. Imagine if we had laborers. But we talked about community earlier. We always talk about we want church community, we want church community. Part of building community is going on mission together. I can't tell you how many relationships were formed through me going on mission trips, through me going out and doing evangelism with other people. That is one of the great things about our faith is you can build community when you do stuff together and evangelism is key in that. We harvest together. It's interesting to know that in the Old Testament, anytime there was imagery of a harvest, uh, it, was it was negative. It was signified that there's a judgment coming. There's a reaping that's going to happen uh, upon the enemies of God. Not really warm and fuzzy feeling stuff. 
But here Jesus is using that same imagery in a twofold way. What he's saying is that judgment will come one day, one that doesn't work in the favor of those that are unsaved. But there is also a harvest of crop that is ready to be reaped and harvested. I need laborers now. We can go if we want. They're ready for me. They're ready for Christ, and the time is now. We look at Joshua 24, 15, when Israel says, This day we will serve the Lord after they reclaim the promised land. That is what we do as followers. This day we will harvest. This day we will go into the field. This day we will be laborers for the Lord. There's just not enough laborers. And why are there not enough laborers? It's a lack of compassion. This is a harsh, we really just don't care. Because what did Jesus do again? He went everywhere. So as followers here at CBC, we go everywhere. We go into the field. What happens to crop if it's not harvested? It goes bad. It dies. Every generation of people have to be harvested in their generation before they die. This means that we have to have a sense of urgency. We have learned these last few weeks that life is but a vapor. Nothing is promised. So let's go and be laborers. But before we do that, we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. I love that Jesus' first directive wasn't, all right, let's go now, go, 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 go. No, he said, stop, pray, and pray for what, though? Pray on where to go? Pray for the lost? No, he says, pray for workers. Pray for people that want to go do this. So often when this text is taught, it's, it's always, well, we pray for the lost, which is a true statement because I've done that myself. I actually preached this sermon like back in 2015 when I first started getting the opportunity to preach. And when I look back at my old PowerPoint, my takeaway point when it came to prayer was pray for the lost. So I taught that text incorrectly, y'all, and I apologize for that right? I didn't talk about what are we supposed to pray for. We're supposed to pray for workers. And so I thank you for your grace and your encouragement not coming up to me that day saying, you did that wrong. But I do want to encourage you again, if I ever preach something that doesn't line up with the scripture or the text that's going on there, come and talk to me because I want to be corrected, right? Because we're family. We do this together. But we pray for kingdom-minded Jesus freaks that want to go and harvest all for the glory of God. We want to pray for diligent, focused, missionary-minded workers that don't want to waste time. We don't want just fuddy-duddies and warm bodies going into the field. We want people that are intentional. And this is the first step. But why do we pray? The motivation for prayer is compassion. It's gratitude for our salvation. It's the gospel of Christ, which is what drives us to pray for more laborers. And to send out is a violent, action-oriented verb. We want God to send out laborers. The Greek word is ekbalo. This means to thrust out, to bid one to go forth. When Jesus cast demons out, he would use the word ekbalo in this manner, right? So when he said demons get out, they didn't just like... No, they, they took off. They were gone. That is how we go into the field. We thrust ourselves into the field with the gospel of hope, ready to teach, preach, and heal. We don't have time to waste, church fam. The time is now, and we have to act as if the day is drawing near. We see that in all the New Testament texts. Go, because the day is coming. We don't know, so let's go. Harvesting is not a suggestion. Harvesting 
is rooted in compassion. It is an expectation. Pastor David Anderson says that compassion adds validity to the gospel. Right? When, you see, when you're out there proclaiming Christ and they see you loving people, hmm, I kind of like that. There's a direct connection between harvesting and compassion. And so pray that in harvesting, you seek to also equip whomever you help harvest. Train them to preach. Train them to teach. Train them to heal. We have to take personal responsibility to be a laborer. Harvesting is more than just conversion. It's disciple-making, teaching, preaching, healing. Praying is not a suggestion. It's an expectation. We pray for workers. If Jesus had a burden for gospel workers, shouldn't we as well? If Jesus prayed for people to go out, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we go as well? If Jesus prayed for people to have compassion, shouldn't we as well? Well, Chang, I have a lot of compassion. Pray for more. You can never go wrong with having too much compassion, I promise you. If there's no compassion, there will be no mission. And so we can understand that compassion is what will need you to notice, to see people, to see the flock, to see the harvest, right? And then from there, then you petition and you pray. You pray earnestly for the harvest, for people to go into the harvest. And then after that, the beauty of harvesting is discipling. You disciple, teach, preach, and heal. I want to close with a, a quote from Count Zinzendorf. This guy blows my mind. I think he's awesome. If you ever want to look him up, it's amazing. Tony and I have had so many conversations just about this guy. This is a man that was born into nobility. He was a German missiologist, and he was associated with the Moravian church, which really for us to understand, they really kind of were like the, the, the first ones that did like cross-cultural ministry, missionary activity. In my notes, it says he's a cool and inspiring guy. <laughs> but this is one of his many quotes. And I love this one because he says, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. I am destined to proclaim the message unmindful of personal consequences to myself. None of this matters if we don't have compassion, though. And so we pray for compassion. We pray for workers, and we go to work. Let's do this together. Let's go harvest together and make a mighty name for the name of Christ. We have some challenges we want you all to do, and it would make too much sense for me to put them on the slide, so I'm just going to tell you them. But this year, we want you to share the gospel with someone. Literally find someone and tell them about Jesus. We have the missions conference, the GO conference next Saturday. I hope you'll come. I'm going to be there. My wife will be there. I'm going to come and tell people you should come because missionaries is part of the missions work is part of the DNA of our church. So let's live into the DNA of our church and let's go welcome our missionaries back and celebrate them for what they're doing for the sake of the ministry. We want you to read the book of James this week. It's a great read. We also want you to memorize Romans 8.1. Let's be laborers together. Church fam.